This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the Products do what they say they're going to do on the label, and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, 
you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week I have an incredibly powerful episode for you. My guests are Jamie Metcalf and Shannon Finn Connell. Jamie was married to Navy SEAL David Metcalf, who served for almost 20 years, but ultimately ended up taking his own life. So Jamie courageously leads us through her own life, how her and David met, the incredible human being that he was, his suicide, and then what they are doing for both mental health and TBI research in memory of this great man. Shannon came on board as co-founder and CEO of the David Metcalf Foundation, so you will hear the incredible synergy between the two of them. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jamie Metcalf and Shannon Finn Connell. Enjoy. Well, Jamie, you and I are part of an incredible thing called the Human Performance Project, and we were actually able to meet in person in Dallas. And when we were there, we discussed doing this podcast. Now, for people listening, I want to welcome you on, but also Shannon, who is the CEO of your nonprofit now, is going to be joining us in a little bit. So I just want to put that up front because uh, there will be another person joining kind of mid-conversation here. But I want to start by just simply welcoming you to the Behind the Shield podcast. Well, thanks for having me, James. Um, it's definitely an honor to be here. This is my first podcast, um, and I'm happy to be doing it with you because we've already met in person. Um, we met in uh, Dallas. It was Dallas, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I had to think about that. Um, and it was really nice to meet everyone. It, it it's very different from, you know, our monthly Zoom meetings. And then to see everyone in person, it's, it was like, this is happening. We're doing this. Um, and a small family was formed instantly. It was like, we all knew each other um, when we met. So it was emotional, very emotional for all of us <laughs> for so many reasons. Um, I, 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 th- I still think back um you know, to that meeting and all these emotions came out. You and I, we spoke briefly before and, you know, I got your take on, um, you know, how I approach certain things. And um, so it was really good to meet you in person. Well, likewise. And again, for the you, this being the first podcast that you come on, thank you for trusting me with your story too. I mean, that's a big part of this whole thing. I don't know if people quite understand the vulnerability it takes to come on here and and share a story and and you know have raw emotions and I think 
the fact that you have allowed me to to, to bring you on and uh, you know tell not only your story but Davis as well. Uh, that means a lot to me. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It, it again, it's an honor to be here. So. I'm excited. <laughs> well, let's start at the very beginning. And so where on planet Earth are we finding you at this moment? Um, I'm at my home in Naperville, which is a southwest suburb of Chicago. Uh, I grew up in um, I grew up in Illinois, I grew up in Burridge, actually. And uh, that's where we're at. That's where I'm at now is Naperville. When David passed away in 2019, I had to make the quick decision of where we were going to move. Um, And I picked Naperville because it was the last spot that David and I and Franklin um, shared together. So this is where I'm at. (laughs) Beautiful. We talked about growing up in Illinois. Let's start at the very beginning. Of course, we'll get into you know who David is and and yeah. the situation you know regarding him passing away and and what you're doing now in his honor. Um, so tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah. So um, I was born in Lagrange Park in Illinois. Um, 1978. Do <laughs> you want to know that? Um, I'm the youngest of three. I have two older brothers. Um, we are all J's, although my na- if I were a boy, my name was supposed to be Steve Austin um, after the million dollar man, right? Um, but I'm named Jamie after the bionic woman. And it was, you know, picked by my brothers, Jeff and Jerry. Most of my cousins, they're, they're named Jays as well. It's pretty cool. Uh, my parents are uh, Filipino. They came from the Philippines at a very young age, right when they graduated college. My mom um, was a nurse. And, um, you know, back then, nursing nurses were in high demand. Um, so she came out here uh, with an agency And she met my dad in Chicago. My dad um, is an accountant, my mom a nurse, um, and then had us. They lived in in Chicago for some time. Um, I know that was was very hard for them at a young age. I want to say they were 18 or 19 years old. Um, And they lived in a pretty rough neighborhood when they first moved here. And um, I want to say after like my dad's third attack, he said, I'm moving my, I need to move my family um, to the suburbs. And so they moved there with my brothers and I came along. Um, So my dad he, um, he is also, he also owned a landscaping business. He did that on the side. And my mom was a florist on the side. And um, when they were able, they, uh, my dad quit his job. He worked for General Motors as their accountant. And he quit that and started his own uh, business. And he had that for um, over 30 years. And then my mom, kept her job as a nurse um, 
but had her own flower shop. So they they had that together. My dad had the garden center and my mom had the flower shop. And um, that's what they were doing. So beautiful. Now, firstly, with regarding the attack, was this basically just a crime driven attack or was there a racial element to some of the uh, the attacks he was a, res- uh, a victim of when he was growing? Excuse me, when he was in Chicago. I didn't think we were going to get into this. <laughs> yes. Um, I, from what he has told me, and, you know, my dad honestly didn't even open up about the attacks um, until very recently. I would say um, one was just wrong time, wrong place. Um, and the other ones were racial. Um, my mom actually, uh, she told me that she was carrying my, she was pregnant with my one brother, um, and then was carrying the oldest and they had to, um, a man was, you know, using racial slurs and, uh, basically chasing her to all the way up to their apartment. Um, you know, they've never really talked about it, to be quite honest with you. They've they've never talked about it. They've kind of kept that to themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's obviously a topic that's been raised a little bit more recently with the kind of Asian hate crimes that appear to have resurfaced. And it's a minority of people that are doing those things. I don't think it's a general feeling at all. But when you look back to what era that was post-Vietnam, um, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of ignorance. I mean, certainly post Afghanistan and Iraq, anyone that was Sikh, Hindu, you know, Muslim by, by these, these bigots were, were targeted at that point. And I could see how the Asian community were probably more vulnerable in the kind of seventies and eighties. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, and I'm right now I'm, I'm even coming to grips with it. I've, I've been called a lot of names and I've, been able to laugh it off. Um, but really they were derogatory comments towards, towards me and my brothers. Um, but again, you know, we don't, we don't talk about it as much and I'm, I'm, I am trying to navigate through that right now as well. Um, I'm getting there. Yeah, well, it's an important conversation. As as you know, my wife is half Filipino herself. Yeah. And um, it's funny because uh, I forget what she says now, how she put it. But, you know, there were obviously names that they had for her. But she was basically, I think, the only Asian in her high school, or one of one of two or three. And they were, it wasn't from a place of hatred, but even what they think is, you know, a, a fun name to that one person is is not fun. But, I mean, when it's, you know... 200 to one then yeah i mean you you're you're gonna probably disregard the feelings of the individual by you know allowing the insensitive comments to to just kind of be rampant yeah yeah um you know i'm a lot more mindful now than i ever was um especially since you know my son he's half filipino and um I'm always very cautious about, um, you know, how I talk to them about races and, and color. And, um, 
you know, I'm glad he's asking those, those kind of questions now. So growing up in the U.S., uh, my wife was immersed in some of the Filipino culture. She was part of Filipino groups when she was younger. She did, and I, please correct me if I got this word wrong, Filipino tenikling, the stick yeah. dance. So she yeah. did that too. So what about that? As you're growing up as a, you know, an American girl with a Filipino heritage, how much were you exposed to as a child? Um, quite a bit. My parents were pretty well known in the Filipino community. Um, you know, my dad was the president of um, a pretty big Filipino organization called Filipino Association of South DuPage. And at the time, there were about 2000 members there. Um, and so we were always involved. Um, I learned all the Filipino dances more so than my brothers did. Um, I went to all the events. Um, I did to Nickling. My mom, you know, she she can still balance a glass of water on her head, and uh, it's called Binasuan. So they've tried to teach us as much as they could um, about about the culture. But yeah, we. We grew up in it. Um, when we got to high school, so my school, um, you know, grade school and uh, junior high, there weren't a whole lot of Asians. Um, mm-hmm. But my high school was 11% Filipino. And so that was <laughs> a culture shock for me and my parents. I remember my parents telling us, we really want you guys to start hanging out with more Filipinos, more Filipinos in the community. And I understood why it was because they were heavily involved in it. Um, But it was, it it was, it was hard. I mean, I was always close with the, um, you know, the olders I'm sorry, the elders and the aunts and uncles and titas and titos and had such a great relationship with them. Um, It was, you know, those that were my age, it was really hard to connect on that level. And I I don't know why. Um, And I, you know, I tried to adapt and, I had a hard time adjusting and um, ended up, you know, becoming closer with the people I grew up with um, my junior, senior year in high school. But yeah, I mean, we were, we were heavily involved. I mean, I had a debutante ball. I had my own cotillion um, when I turned 18 and that was different. Uh, It was like a wedding. Um, yeah, my parents didn't set themselves up very well for that. (laughs) (laughs) So, cause they knew they're like, oh boy, what's her wedding going to be like? (laughs) Um, but yeah, it, uh, you know, we, that's what it was like growing up. Beautiful. Well, Shannon's joined us now. So firstly, welcome Shannon. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. 
So I'm just going to bring you up to speed kind of where we are with Jamie, and then we'll just kind of go back and forth as we go through the timeline, if that works for you. That's super. So opening question, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. I was born in Toledo, Ohio, and um, I have one older brother. Um, My parents divorced when I was pretty young seven, eight years old. And, um, so I have a lot of, I am fortunate to have, um, four parents and, um, additional siblings who have been a part of of my life for a long time. And it's kind of the approach that I take on family anyway, which is, you know, we're all in this together. So, um, I'm, I'm really, I'm really lucky that, that I have all my, all my folks, um, around my stepfather was a firefighter, uh, fire chief EMT. My mother, uh, started out in politics, um, was a local politician. And then she, uh, was a professor, um, in political science. My father, um, has his degrees in business, uh, including his MBA. And he uh, taught for a while as well, but did a lot of his work in um, children advocacy. Um, and then uh, my stepmom uh, was a communication specialist who found her way uh, before that as a respiratory therapist, um, and then did most of the work that she did professionally in a hospital environment. So. So you were exposed to not only the the kind of uh, concept of service, but also the management marketing side as well within those four parents. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was really lucky in that respect. Um, all of my uh, parents went through their education um, after I was around. So I got to witness their um kind of their growth through achieving their undergraduate degrees and then their graduate degrees um, and be a part of that experience. I think um, that journey is really inspiring. I think it's great for kids to see um, parents um, work hard, not just in a career context, but in terms of advancing their own skill sets um, and, you know, certainly set a certain uh, work education ethic um, for, for me that, we still have in in my family now too. Beautiful. Yeah, I was just telling Jamie, my wife's half Filipino, but she's actually in med school at the moment, optometry school. So both my boys are getting to see her. I mean, just being brutalized. <laughs> so yeah, none of them can say it's not fair because their mother or stepmother is uh, is working twice as hard as them any day of the week. That's right. I, I think it's fantastic, and uh, just you know, really, it really shows that like. The amount of effort and support that is required, I, I believe no one really gets through that on their own. It does require a, lo- a level of you know, compassion, understanding, and support that comes from the whole unit uh, to get through. Um, so that's really cool. Absolutely. Well, when you were at school age, what were you dreaming of career-wise? Hmm. Musician. Um, writer. I kind of had a creative side. Um, I didn't really know uh, 
a pathway forward for myself that would land me in the business world, but <laughs> but that's exactly what ended up happening. Um, I found that, you know, I, I I think like a lot of kids who go through, you know, some level of disruption in their in their family unit, um, sometimes find creative outlets to be very soothing. Um, and so that was certainly true for me. I really enjoyed writing and I've been a, you know, a pretty active piano player most of my life. So that's and what I did. What was your path into the business world then? Well, I was graduating from undergrad um, and with, with my undergraduate degrees in psychology, I was graduating from undergrad and at the university that I was attending, the University of Cincinnati, um, I literally received a phone call from a fairly large company um, that they were interested in interviewing me. Um, and they were looking at uh, those who had demonstrated leadership skills on campus. So it was less about what did you study and more about, you know, your, your grades, your performance, and what kind of leadership you had, um, because they were looking for people who could come in and kind of hit the ground running and be leaders in the organization. And so um, my pathway in was um, through Procter & Gamble and uh, joined them. I was, you know, 21, I think, when I accepted the offer, but I didn't start until after I turned 22 that summer when I graduated from undergrad. And within three years, I was uh, working and living uh, in China. Um, so I, uh, spent a fair amount of time with Procter and Gamble, um, in China, working on the Asia market, um, you know, selling Pantene and doing all the great things that we do in, in the consumer products world, um, advertising and really a lot of consumer understanding, trying to get an, uh, a sense for, um, you know, why this was a good fit for me, um, I just have a real uh, deep sense of curiosity. And I think that when you approach business or anything, quite frankly, in that context, what you're doing is you're exploring and have the opportunity to leave your biases at the door and um, really go in with this, under, you know, this ability to understand people in, in a way that can um, maybe provide some level of insight or breakthrough understanding that is different from those of us who live among the similar culture. And we kind of take whatever habits and practices people do for granted. We're like, Oh, we always do it that way. You know, but first time I saw somebody washing their clothes, you know, in rural China, I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Tell me everything that is happening right now. So it was very anthropological and I really under, I, I just appreciate and enjoy that kind of um, experience. So that kept me international for quite some time. I then moved to, uh, you know, back to Cincinnati, back to um, the headquarters, if you will, with Procter & Gamble, but I was in Caracas within probably six months. So um, it didn't take long to kind of keep that going just found that I really enjoyed it um, and that I had maybe some latent skill sets related to business that I didn't even recognize in myself until I was in that environment and was like, this is cool. I like building things. So, Well, one more thing before I go back to Jamie. When, when you talk about understanding different cultures, what I have noticed through layman's eyes is it's very easy to paint an entire country as the boogeyman. So, for example, Ukraine versus Russia, there's an assumption that all Russians are like, they woke up one morning that I just want to take over the Ukraine. And I don't think that most Russian people have any desire to do that, or even knowledge of it. 
The same happens with China. China is, quote unquote, the enemy. As someone who was immersed in, you know, you just talked about rural China. So I'm assuming a whole spectrum of Chinese people. Educate us on, you know, maybe some of the, the cons, but also the, the beauties of Chinese culture. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I miss it. It's a truly beautiful um, culture, environment. Um, you know, the languages are are phenomenal. And um, we could talk about the food for a long time. Um, but I, I lived in, in Guangzhou, China, which is southern China. Um, and as we think about kind of the, the cities that we're really familiar with, they're kind of right around the, the Gold Coast. So north being Beijing, kind of center being Shanghai. And I was in Guangzhou. And um, it kind of like the same, you know, latitude. I think it's latitude, not longitude. But anyway, I would be on par with like Havana, Cuba, right? Whereas up in Beijing, it would be, you know, New York City. And so these are tremendous differences. It would take me five hours to fly to Beijing from where I lived. I was closer to Hong Kong than I was to uh, Beijing or Shanghai. Um, But in terms of really understanding, you know, the beauty that exists within China, it's getting away from those big cities that, you know, in the 90s, um, they were becoming far more capitalist. There, there was a lot of change that was happening there that actually was akin to some of the things that I was familiar with um, coming from the U.S. It was in the rural environments where, um, you know, Harbin and so many other cities and places that I that I spent time where, I was able to kind of go back to a slower pace. And I think one of the most beautiful things about Asia in general is that it, it, it can have a slower pace, um, rural in particular. And there is a serenity and a peace that really comes from that. Um, I think rural China in, in many respects um, was um, kind of like, like when I, the first time I went to Cambodia or the first time I went to Vietnam, if it felt like that, it was slower. And then like you go to Laos and it's even slower. It's like, wow, how low can this go? You know, it, just, it was outside the frenzy and the environment of being in a place like Shanghai or Beijing. So I just really enjoyed that experience because it was so unique and um, it, the natural beauty and there, there was nothing that I found really pretentious about it. No one was trying to put on airs. It was just people living their daily life and the community aspect of a family. Everybody, not only in one room, but, you know, oftentimes sharing one bed, um, you know, with like coming together. And it was, yeah, a lack of space, but it was also just amazing the way that the elder uh, and elderly community is treated uh, with reverence and respect was just you know, inspiring. And um, sometimes I think there are things that we have in, in our culture there. We've lost sight of so many of the, the beautiful aspects of a country that's been around, you know, 10 times or, or more as long as we have um, and what we can learn from, from the simplicity and the beauty that exists within their lives. So I, uh, I miss it. 
Beautiful. Well, thank you for that perspective. And I agree. I mean, if you look at things like ac- acupuncture and chiropractic, um, chiropractic, excuse me, and Chinese medicine. I mean, I think now the arrogance of, you know, this last century is starting to be revealed and we're going, Oh, you mean CBD, THC, you know, all these, all these different things are actually working and these pharmaceuticals right. that we've been told are, you know, the be all end all are actually harmful to us. So I think there's a real, kind of like i said reveal like okay you know we've we've been duped a little bit in the industrial revolution but now it's time to take the good things from technology and progress but also question a lot of the other things that ultimately are doing more harm than good i agree all right well jamie so we had you at kind of high school age so walk me through your career aspirations and then where where that took you um so that was a tough one for me i I've always wanted to be a nurse, um, wanted to follow in my mom's footsteps. That's what they wanted me to do. Um, I ended up going to school at Iowa State in Ames, Iowa. Uh, I was there for almost two years. Um, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And my parents said, come back and figure it out here. So I went to community college. Um, I worked, I became a CNA. So a nurse's assistant did very well. Um, And then I worked as a nurse's assistant while going to school um, at the college of DuPage. And uh, I worked at Elmhurst hospital and I realized probably after a year and a half that, um, this wasn't, this wasn't for me. I couldn't, I couldn't handle the emotional side of it. Um, and I'll never forget when I saw, um, an elderly couple and I saw a, um, the husband, he had, he fell and his wife just looked so distraught and they were in their nineties and she didn't know what to do. And I, I, you know, we helped them up and she looked so helpless. And I, at that moment I said, Oh, I don't think I can do this. Um, because I would get so emotional every time, um, you know, something like that would happen. I, I would easily make a connection with all the, all our patients. Um, I loved it, but Emotionally, it was very hard to handle. Um, and then in 2005, I, you know, had a talk with my parents and I said, I, I need to make a change. Um, and I went to San Diego. We have family out in San Diego, stayed out with them. And I started um you know, I've worked in retail. I've always worked since I was 15. Um, I've had two or three jobs at a time. Uh, we're always, my family, I come from um, a family of hard workers. And uh, so, you know, grew, grew up with a very good work ethic. Um, so then when I moved to San Diego, I worked retail. Um, and then said, this isn't for me either. And I um, found a job at the Sheraton San Diego Hotel and Marina in San Diego as an engineering coordinator. Um, I was like their office manager. 
And I ended up falling in love with it. I went back to school. I went to, um, you know, vocational school and then Phoenix University and got my degree in business information systems. And, um, but I didn't graduate till I was almost 30 years old. Uh, it took me some time to figure out what I really wanted to do, but I love the operational side of working in the hotels. And I did that. Uh, I worked in the engineering department um, for about eight years. And then um, I, you know, I had a hard time moving, moving around the hotel because I had no experience other than in that department. Um, so I, you know, took on other other tasks with other departments just to get my name out there. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go to the W Hotel as the executive assistant for the GM. That was probably one of my most favorite jobs I've ever had. Um, it, you know, great experience. I met a lot of people. And then um, when David got into the PA program in San Antonio, I, tra- I was able to transfer out to the Westin and I was their group sales coordinator. And, um, you know, another, another fun job, another, you know, great place to meet people and um, great friendships formed there. Um, but I loved, I loved working in sales. So. Beautiful. Well, we kind of got into the, you know, already married area. So I want to go back a little bit. So talk to me about 2011 and how you met David. <laughs> I actually met David in 2005. Oh, okay. Sorry. I got that wrong. Yeah. No. Um, I mean, that's, that's what's in, you know, like the bio or his obituary. Um, we started dating in 2011, but I actually met David in 2005 through some mutual friends. Um, I believe the first, was it 2005? I'm sorry, it's 2006. I believe the um, first time I met David was at a sushi restaurant (laughs) and, um, you know, just having drinks, having a good old time. And then um, I would see him at parties. We would hang out um, in group settings. Um, And then there were times where it was just me and him. Um, We were kind of like the third wheel. Uh, We we always had relationships um, when we would see each other at parties. So we never really looked at each other um, in that way. Um, but I always, you know, I always liked David um, and thought he was a good person. And then um, 2011, we, um, his friend and my friend talked about how David started salsa dancing. And they said, and I said, oh, I like to salsa dance. And I would go salsa dancing at, you know, the hotels on Friday and Saturday night and um, they said, oh, you should salsa dance with David. And I said, oh, that'd be good. And, and he was taking up salsa dancing to meet other women. <laughs> um, it was a suggestion from 
you know, one of his friends, his friend, uh, Scott Stout. And um, he ended up really getting into it. And it wasn't, it wasn't even about meeting women anymore. He started to compete in it <laughs> and have private lessons. And uh, anyways, um, my cousin was having a 50th birthday party and, um, you know, our friends said, you should bring David. And I didn't ask him to go. My friends told him, you're going to go with Jamie. You're going to, you know. And so, um, yeah, I, I will never forget that moment. And I looked at him and he was wearing this really ugly white button down <laughs> shirt. Um, it was awful. But he looked good. <laughs> and we both had these pink lays because it was a Hawaiian theme. Um, and we danced, uh, we salsa danced horribly for the first time together. I think we were both nervous. I think we knew what was, what was going to happen here. Um, and then it was July 3rd, actually. So, and then July 4th, my parents were, <laughs> were having a, um, a, uh, get together at their house and, you know, Filipino get togethers are pretty big. <laughs> it was my whole entire family. And this poor guy walks in my parents' house and um, my dad is singing. They're karaoke. <laughs> and my dad's singing sexual healing by Marvin Gaye. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, this can't be any more awkward. And, <laughs> <laughs> he walks so my you know David walks in and um I was just so I was just mesmerized by him um and we had such great conversation and exchanged numbers <laughs> and then that next Monday came along and I was working so I was work I was also working as um a key holder at Ann Taylor. Um, so I, was, I should have mentioned I was working as a key holder at Ann Taylor while working um, at the Sheraton full-time and going to school. And um, so uh, I get a call while I'm working. I kept, I kept going in the back office. I'm like, oh, I'm going to check on the numbers, but I was really checking on a particular number and that was David's number. And he called and he said, can I stop by your work? And he did. And um, now I'd seen him many times before that, but I was so nervous to see him. I knew at, I knew that this was going to be something. I just didn't know what exactly. Um, and then he told me about a girl that was uh, really interested in him and they kind of dated and she would just show up in random places. It was almost like, he's like, I think she's stalking me, but I'm not sure. I said, okay. He's like, can you come salsa dance with me um, on Friday? And I said, sure. We met, we ended up meeting beforehand we were talking on the phone I think it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday uh, don't ask me why I remember these days but um, I 
was on my way home, but I was hungry. And I said, hey, I'm hungry. And he said, me too. I'm, let's go out and have dinner. He goes, what do you want? Um, and I said, I don't want Mexican food because I've already had that for lunch. And he said, okay, well, what do you want? And I said, seafood would be good. So he sends me the address to this place. And I should have figured it out, right, when he told me the name of it. But I was like, okay, maybe it is seafood. And so the place is called Playa del Mar. (laughs) 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 And I'm like, I don't think, you know, I didn't want to be rude um, because I really liked them. And uh, yeah, so... Saw him in the parking lot, almost brought my phone in. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to need my phone. Uh, Left my phone in the car. And we ended up, um, we got there around 7, stayed there till 11. We closed it out. Um, We shared a chocolate dessert together. And then um, (laughs) I... You know, I always hug David, but I, I I remember hugging him for like the first time where I was like, wow. And I I put my hands on his chest. I'm like, sorry. Wow, that's nice. And he goes, <laughs> did you just do that? And I said, I don't know what came over me. I'm like, I couldn't help it. I'm like, wow, that's nice. Can I hug you again? And um, it was just just a hug. And then uh, that Friday, um, we went and we uh, had dinner. And then um, we ended up going to, um, I forgot, was it the Four Points, the Four Point Sheraton uh, to Salsa Dance. And he's like, okay, she might be here. I said, all right. And uh, he said, can I hold your hand? I said, sure. You know, because I was acting like his girlfriend. The old, I think I have a stalker story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, he, we see the girl from afar and he goes, okay, I'm going to introduce you to her. And I'm like, why? <laughs> so weird. And he holds my hand and he's like, I forgot the girl's name. He's like, hi, this is Jamie. And she just walks right past us. And he goes, that was rude. And I'm like, well, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> um, but we never stopped holding hands since then. The next day we went to Palm Springs because it was a planned trip with our friends. Um, it wasn't a romantic trip for him and I. It was just already planned. And um, after drinking a little bit, I looked at him and I said, oh, boy, I am going to fall for you. And I said it out loud. <laughs> And he just looked at me with deep concern. I'm like, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, But then after that moment, um, you know, things happened very, very fast for us. Um, I think my mom wasn't too excited about it. Um, I remember he came over to the house and you know, still living with my mom at the time. And um, I said, mom, David's here. Do you want to say hi? She's like, no, thank you though. (laughs) (laughs) And 
And uh, he's like, how do I get on her good side? I said, well, she's doing a wedding next weekend. Can you help her with that? And he said, sure. And my, my mom was desperate for help that particular weekend. And um, she had one of my cousins helping. And, and uh, I said, mom, use Dave. He'll help you. She's like, fine. And I think from that moment on, she said, this is the one. He, he can understand our culture. I think that was the biggest part for her is that she didn't know if he would be able to accept, um, you know, our culture. And, uh, and then my mom said, I think he's more Filipino than you are because he eats more food than you do. Not, <laughs> you know, he's not picky at all. But anyways, um, I think the moment where I, I realized um you know, I knew that we had something special, but I broke my ankle in October. We were helping my mom with the wedding <laughs> and the way he took care of me, I fell and he, the way he took care of me was just so beautiful. He picked me up and he carried me, he carried me from, you know, the street to the hotel, from the hotel to the car you know, like, and then to the emergency room and, um, and, uh, you know, he took care of me at his place. I stayed with him. I was in a cast for, from October to December. So quite some time. Um, but he took, you know, just such great care of me. And, um, we talked about getting married um, and then we got engaged. Uh, we actually <laughs> had our wedding planned before uh, we got, before he proposed to me. Um, he, this poor guy went to Chicago. We surprised my family in Chicago on Thanksgiving. And um, he went I saw him go upstairs with my mom and then my, or my dad, my mom followed. <laughs> and um, I should say prior to this, I, I knew what was going to happen. And I asked my dad, I said, so if David asked for your permission um, to marry me, what would you say? And he's like, oh, I would grill him. You know, I would ask him what his intentions are. And uh, I said, okay. He's like, yeah, I would have a very, you know, hard discussion with him. You're my only girl. You're the youngest, you know? And I said, okay. And so when I saw them go up, you could see like my dad sweating. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw, you know, maybe like 30 minutes later and the whole family's there for Thanksgiving. This poor guy just threw him in and the whole family's there and they, my cousins go, look at your dad. And my dad's bracing on to the handrail of the stair, of the staircase. And then he does, um, you know, puts his hands over his eyes and then like wipes his forehead. And he looks down and, <laughs> and my mom comes down and she's smiling. And David comes up to me, goes, beautiful. I'm really sorry. And I said, what happened? And he goes, oh, you're about to hear it. And I'm like, what did my dad say? He goes, he said, okay. 
And I go, that's all he said? He goes, yeah, your dad, he goes, I thought your dad was going to faint. I was so worried. Um, and I go, what, what are you sorry about? And then all of a sudden, my mom, she's like, everyone, I have an announcement. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and, and I'm like, mom, no, 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 no. And she goes, Jamie's, Jamie and David, they're getting married. Um, I know this is the first time you're meeting him, but he's a really nice guy and they're getting married in April. So make sure you can come because <laughs> we already had the date, the date set. Um, and um, my whole family, they came out, we married on April 7th, they came out and uh, it was a beautiful, humongous wedding. It was huge. Um but everyone did, just fell in love with David and uh, yeah, that that's pretty much our story. I could tell you more stories, but that's pretty much, you know. Beautiful. Yeah. So just for people listening then, if you want to give an overview of his journey into the Navy, I know he was pre 9-11 when he joined, when he joined the SEAL teams and also kind of weave in when uh, Ryan, Ryan Parrott was his partner. Um, so I really wish Ryan was on uh, this call because he could, I can't give you the details of their partnership. Um, you know, the full details, I won't be able to do it justice. Well, he'll, um, he'll be coming on with you another time as well. So for people listening, we will be able to have that conversation. Okay. Um, so David joined in 2000. Um, he was in Bud's class 236, graduated honor man. Um, he was a fantastic swimmer, uh, you know, well-loved and well-liked by um, his teammates. He did uh, three, three deployments, um, Asia Pacific and Iraq, and then his last deployment um, was in Afghanistan. And... Um, that was right before he had passed away. So he, uh, David was also um, a combatives instructor. He helped rewrite the combatives course for SEAL training. Um, and then I want to say 2000, I mean, even before we got married, he had already talked about uh, wanting to transition out. Uh, he had mentioned how, you know, the, the last point, the last deployment was very tough for him and he, he was ready to um, get out. So he thought about nursing. He found out um, from, you know, a friend of ours that uh, there's a PA program out there. And so he looked into that. He had no medical experience prior to that. Um, he did have a he did have a psychology degree, but he he didn't really use it. Um, he wasn't a corpsman or a medic, um, so again, no experience. And uh, he said, I don't know if I'll be able to get in this program. Um, it's a tough program. I think, uh, you know, I, I think there are a total of 60 um, servicemen and women in this program from all branches, but 14 to 16 from the Navy. And he said, it's going to be tough. 
Um, but he ended up getting in and, you know, because he did so well on his interview, um, he, you know, had really good grades. Um, sorry, <laughs> it's hard to go back. Um, he, he did very well. He did well in everything that he did, but, um, yeah, David joined the PA program. He got in in 2014. We went to San Antonio. And um, I re- I won't forget that orientation. And they said uh, they brought in all the families, which I think was awesome to do and to prepare us. Um, they said, you know, your husbands aren't deployed um, or your loved ones are not deployed. They're going to be here, but their spirit will be gone. They're, they're physically here, but their spirit is gone. And um, because of all the, the classroom work that they had to do, it was a very intense program. And a lot of people failed out. The, you know, it was kind of like buds for him. And, um, and he was actually the only one without any medical experience in his class. Uh, so it was, it was tough, but he succeeded and um, graduated. And then we got transferred out to um, San Diego, back to San Diego, which was great. And um, he did his clinicals there. And we had uh, Franklin in 2016. And then he was commissioned right after that. And then we moved to North Carolina. And um, another tough transition for David, I think that he he didn't realize that as a PA that he would deploy more than a doctor would. And, um, you know, from the time we moved to North Carolina to the time he passed away, I want to say maybe he spent a, a total of two months with us. Um, you know, he went to um, officer school in Rhode Island and he was there for about five weeks, came back for about a few, a couple weeks um, and then went on another training Um which was, which was a tough one. He went as a PA and um, someone came up to him. Someone high rank came up to him and um, pointed at his medical pin and said, I don't really care about that pin. I'm pretty certain you're good at what you, you do, what you were trained to do. I only care about that pin and pointed at his trident. And from that moment on, David got transferred to a um, task force unit. And so there were, you know, MARSOC and recon um, guys there. And I know he was pretty sad about it. He's like, I'm not really doing what I studied to do. Um, But then when he started, you know, he did CRB training with these guys. When he started getting back, to training, there was a different light in David that I saw. And I think it was because of that camaraderie that he had formed with them. And so 
um, I had nothing to worry about. You know, he seemed happy, um, but he was gone a lot. And then he had to go on this deployment. Um, I don't think I mentioned he was attached to the Marines. So he went on this deployment, uh, was supposed to be nine months and then 10 months and then 11 months. And it was a very long deployment, but he was actually, um, I remember on his way there, he called and they stopped in Germany and uh, he said, beautiful, their big Navy's trying to take me back. They want me to go to the main camp. And, you know, I was smiling. I was like, that's great. <laughs> He's like, no, it's not. And I said, okay, but this is what you wanted to do. And he said, well, I've already been training with these guys for about eight months and you never leave a man standing. And I said, okay, so what are you going to do? He goes, well, they're going to have to helicopter me out. So he went um, with his task force unit. And the next day when he, they got to Afghanistan, they got to their area. Um, and, uh, the next day, they helicoptered him out. They really wanted him. They really wanted him. Um, and then, so there was a big argument there with the Marines and um, the Navy, and they came to an agreement he could do both. So he ended up doing both. He would go back and forth, which was good for him. Um, and then he came back November 3rd, 2018. Left January 2nd. 2018 back um, November 3rd. But, um, you know, going back to, I know you mentioned Birdman. Um, he taught, I actually never met Ryan um, until David's funeral or the wake, I should say. So, but I've always heard about Ryan and um you know, we would always try to contact Ryan and it was really hard to get a hold of Ryan. It was also hard to get a hold of David because David didn't have a cell phone. He was probably the only person um, our age <laughs> that I knew had a landline. And he wanted Ryan to be a, uh, a groomsman. And, um, but we couldn't get a hold of each other. And I said, okay, are you going to fill the spot? And he said, no, I, I would never fill Ryan's spot. So I said, okay. So um, when I met Ryan, it was like things came full circle because that was the one person that he talked about so often about how amazing Ryan was. And that was his sniper buddy and you know how loyal he was. So when I met him, I just, I just, I felt again, like things came full circle. You know, I've met everyone that was close to David. Um, so that's that. <laughs> well, I had a, an amazing, I've actually had two conversations with Sarah Wilkinson, Chad's widow. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's so powerful to hear who these men were, you know, whilst they were, you know, on this earth, whilst they're with their beloved wives. Um, but it's also important to hear through the wife's eyes of that 
perceived breakdown. So when you look back, were there any moments where either it was a TBI element that he was complaining of, of physical injuries and or you know a, a change in mood, a change in mental health leading up to this at all? So one thing I, I will say about David is research, research, research. He did a lot of it. Um, he had concerns and he had always had concerns. I would say probably, you know, when he was going through PA school, you know, he would talk about gut health. I mean, that was his, uh, his paper, his big paper was on gut health. And, um, he would talk a lot about Alzheimer's and he would talk a lot about dementia, but he'd never bring up traumatic brain injury um, or blast waves, nothing in regards to his job, but he would always talk about dementia and Alzheimer's and he did so much research on it and he did everything that he could, you could tell to take care of himself. Like, Grossly enough, he didn't wear deodorant. That was a big joke. Um, very particular about, you know, the shampoos and the soaps he would use. No toxins. Um, we had to eat as clean as we could. Organic living. Um, and it was the David I knew. Um, I didn't, I did not, I just thought it was kind of more of like a quirkiness about him or that was his thing. And so I learned to accept it, but I also appreciated it too, because he was right. Um, but everything. And then when Franklin was, when we got pregnant with Franklin, you know, he was saying, okay, our furniture has to be organic. It has to be completely you know, toxin-free, our bed, everything. I mean, driving, when we were in North Carolina, we had to drive a few hours away to to pick out a bed <laughs> that was completely um, 100% organic. Um, so he was very mindful of that. And he he talked, he didn't have a cell phone. And he said, no, that is going to affect the brain. So he would talk about that as it would affect the brain. And he was careful with what Franklin watched as well. So now fast forward to North Carolina and this deployment. Um, you know, it was hard deployment. Obviously, you know, Franklin was um, had just turned one. And, you know, Franklin and, and David had I know he was a baby, but Franklin loved David so much. And he would crawl to David every time he would come in. And there was one time where Franklin was so happy. David walked in after being gone for two months. And Franklin looked back and he just started crying, but he was crawling and crying to him at the same time. And David said, wow. I'm like, yeah, he's not scared of you. He's, he missed you. And um, so anyways, going to deployment, um, 
you know, one thing, can I mention something about David too? Of course. Uh, David always biked to work. It didn't matter how cold it was or how icy it was. He would bike to work. And um, even I would even leave the car and carpool with someone else because it was icy out. And he's like, no, I'm good. I'll just go on the grass. <laughs> like, okay, I'm not worried about you. I'm worried. I mean, I'm worried about him. I'm worried about the cars that can slide into you. And he's like, I'm good. And I said, okay. But on his deployment, um, you know, he had to go to base at 3 a.m. He said, I don't want you to wake up Franklin. So I'm going to bike myself to deployment to the base. And it was 19 degrees out and he biked himself there. Um, and then, you know, we talked a lot. We wrote letters to each other all the time. Um, it seemed like things were going well. Um, but I do remember towards the end of his deployment, him calling me saying that he had lost, um, they had lost someone and um, it was a green beret and he happened to be Filipino and um, from the same region as my mom. So I don't know if that's why it had, it, that, I think that's part of the reason it hit him a little bit harder um, because they started talking about um, they started while he, he was, I forgot where he got shot. Um, but, you know, David was keeping him alive while they were in transport and um, he kept talking to him and uh, David's like, he just talked about his wife and where they're from. And, you know, I told him about you and, you know, mom and where mom is from. And I knew that he wasn't going to make it. I knew that I was going to be the last person that he spoke to. Um, and he died. He ended up dying. And uh, David never he never talked about, you know, his emotions with that. And then he came home um, and that was, that was tough. And uh, because I had received a phone call that day from his uncle who said that his only cousin on um, his mom's side had died of a drug overdose and it was, it was his baby girl cousin. And um, he's like, can you please let David know? And I'm like, I'm about to pick him up um, coming back from his deployment. So he gets back from deployment and it was, it was uh, the, you know, the best thing to see David come off that bus and I ran to him and I cried and I was just so happy. And, um, you know, I will never forget that. Like, and I could even feel in his embrace that there was so much emotion um, there. And, uh, you know, we spent the next day together and then I told him, I said, I have to tell you something. 
He said, okay. And I told him, I said, your cousin, she died of a drug overdose. She was very young in her um, mid twenties. And he said, okay, what do we do? Are we going out there? You know, he, he got into that fight mode, no emotion. And I said, why don't you sit with it? Sit with it for a while, for a minute. And he did. And he called his uncle and, um, we ended up not going to the service and, um, he's like, I, I don't think I can go. And I said, okay, it's up to you. He goes, but we'll be there in spirit and, you know, talk to his uncle. Um, you know, the week that he was, he, the first week, first two weeks were great. Um, but then I started to notice some things in David. You know, he was always tired and he kept saying, you know, I'm, I'm still adjusting with the food because the food I ate in Afghanistan wasn't good and it's doing things to my stomach. And I said, okay. But there are other things that I noticed. Um, you know, he would say he would do things and not do them. And that was very, very different for David. Um, you know, one day I came home and all the, our pantry was emptied out, completely emptied out. And I'm like, what are you, what's going on? And he said, oh, I'm just organizing it. And then never touched it. He just left it there. And that was not like David. Um, and then just, you know, little things, putting putting the wet laundry into the dry laundry, into, you know, into the dryer where the clothes were already dry. And he would just put it in there. And I'm like, that's different. Um, but again, I, you know, I mean, those are things that I could have done too, you know, because I was always so tired with Franklin and, um, you know, Franklin got up a lot in the middle of the night. So that's, you know, that's what I was thinking, but you know, his mood was pretty stable. It was good um, at that time. And then um, we had a party to go to. And all of a sudden, he's like, I don't want to go. I have a headache. I don't. He's like, and I got things to do. And I noticed the shift in David. And I said, what's, what's wrong? He's like, nothing. And I go, well, you know what, David, you're still adjusting. And he goes, no, I'm adjusted. I'm like, it's been now at that time, I'm like, it's been three weeks. He's like, no, I'm good. I said, okay. Looking back, James, I wonder, I often wonder if that was going to be the day David did it if he was contemplating that day to do it. Because I remember seeing con concussion books out. And, you know, I just thought he was organizing his books. That's all. So, um, you know, come, um, come December, 
um, David had said, or before it was right after, I'm sorry, it was uh, Thanksgiving. So before Thanksgiving, he had said, next week, can we go visit Grammy? He said, sure, his Grammy. And she's in Boston. And he goes, I'm so sorry to, you know, be so spontaneous about this and just last minute, because that's not who he was either. He would, he did things planned out. For me, I was kind of excited that he was doing it. You know, I said, yes, let's go on a road trip. Let's go do something. Um, and uh, he just kept apologizing for it. He said, I'm sorry to do this last minute. So he goes, can we visit my brother on the way? And I said, sure. So we go, we visit his brother and um, his wife and her family too. And um, then we go to Boston and have a really nice time with his Grammy and his aunt and uncle and his cousins out there. And um, we were going to meet up with my cousin in New York. And he said, beautiful, do you mind if we go back and see my brother? I said, sure. So we canceled our trip to New York and went back to New Jersey and spent um, a little bit more time with his brother. We got back and then um, he goes, okay, let's go visit your family for Christmas. And then we went um, Uh, I don't know how much I should share here. It's hard to share. Um, This is tough, you know, I mean, because you look back, I mean, looking back, James, I mean, the signs weren't great enough for me to say that this is something that he would have ever done. But looking back, you know, I mean, there were things that David was doing to make sure um, that he had everything in line. Like he, I remember we went to Chicago um, and we stopped. We were in West Virginia. That was our stop. We took a road trip. Um, and by the way, the car was packed with all this stuff, all this baby stuff to give away to our cousins. And I said, I don't really understand why you want to give all this stuff away. He goes, it's okay. And, um, and I know now he was just trying to make things a lot easier for me. I think he knew exactly what he was doing at that time in December. And um, when we got to West Virginia and Shannon, I don't think I've even told you this. (laughs) Um, He pulled out pregnancy tests and he said, make sure He's like, are you pregnant? And I'm like, okay. And um, I was not. And, um, you know, we weren't intimate after that. And uh, so had a great time in Chicago with family. Um, We, you know, had a little family shoot with my brother and uh, with my brothers and their families and my parents and just had a really special time. And, you know, the things David was saying um, and doing 
it was as if, because he knew it was as if he was living life as, as it was his last day. Um, you know, just the things he was saying about my brothers and the way he would look at them and he would say, I love them so much. And I'm like, why are you, I'm like, that's so sweet. You know, and David was always so sweet and so genuine. Um, and I'm like, that's so sweet, David. They love you too. He's like, I know I can feel it. And then, um, the next night we went out with my cousins and we went to Wrigleyville and he had this terrible headache and he's like, I go, we can stay home. And he was throwing up and um, he was throwing up in my brother's bathroom. And I said, let's just stay home. He goes, no, I'm good. We're going out. And he took a Tylenol and David had never taken any um, medication. I, well, I go back. I mean, he, he did take, um, one pain pill when he had hip surgery, but after that, he didn't take anything. So I didn't think anything of it. I mean, I was surprised and I said, are you sure you don't have to do that? He goes, no, I really want to, you know, he's like, I don't know when the next time um, will be when we can all hang out and I really want to go. And he's like, I want to salsa dance with you. And I said, okay, (laughs) that's what you want to do. And he took a Tylenol and um, it was just such a magical time. And we would hear, we didn't go to a salsa place um, because we were busy uh, bar hopping, but they were playing. We could hear it from the outside and we would dance on the outside. Um, But there is this, it was almost like he was a kid, you know, he was so happy. Um, and then the next day, um, we was, was it, it was Christmas Eve and then Christmas. And we, you know, another great few days with family. We went bowling. We um, hung out with the cousins. And then the night before we were driving home, we stopped at my cousin's house um, to spend some time with them. And we sat in the driveway and he said, Naperville. He's like, so if I got transferred out here, is this where you would want to live? And I said, yeah, I love Naperville, but it's really far from Great Lakes. Um, and we were even looking up houses on Zillow. Like, and he's like, what do you love about this? I go, well, the family's close by. And it is, um, you know, one of the top three places to live for families in Illinois. And the school district is amazing. So he's like, all right, cool. Naperville it is. I said, okay. And um, we, uh, oh, also something I remember we were with, my brother was leaving that day, um, him and his family, and he didn't get to say bye to them. And I remember David, like, he's like, let's go in the parking lot. Let's look for them. He wanted to say bye to them. And I said, we're going to see them again. Don't worry. And um, now I know why. Right. Anyways, he, um, we drove back and he started, um, you know, organizing more at home. He said, well, I checked, 
I checked back in um, to my command. So let's on January 2nd. So let's make sure we do some things with Franklin uh, beforehand. He goes, because this is a new command and I don't know what it's going to be like. And um, he goes, I, I bet I'm going to be busy. I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time and I'm probably going to get deployed again. I said, okay. So uh, New Year's Eve, um, you know, we had some weird conversations and he said, um, he's like, Franklin's 529 is under my name. I need to get it changed. You need to be um, in charge of that. And I said, what's don't worry about it. He's like, no, let, let's get to a computer and fix that. And I, I remember getting annoyed with him. I'm like, don't worry about it. It's New Year's Eve. Let's just enjoy New Year's Eve. You can do it another day. And um, he's like, <sighs> and he got annoyed with me too. And we went, he, I go, what do you want to do? He goes, let's go to a park. And we went to a park. And I remember David saying, he was swinging Franklin and I have the pictures. He goes, is he smiling? Is he smiling? And um, I said, yes, he's smiling. He goes, he goes, can you take pictures of him smiling? And um, I said, sure. And um, then we, you know, cooked dinner, had some steaks. And he's like, can I salsa dance with you? And uh, I said, sure, we salsa dance together. And then um, the next day was, uh, you know, January 1st. And um, he's like, okay, what's the plan for the, for the day? And uh, we were invited to a few places, but we picked um, our friend's house, Megan and Jordan. Megan and I had become close. Jordan was um, a doctor at Camp Lejeune and um, um, Franklin and their son Whit were best friends. And so we went over to their house and conversation there was interesting. He goes, you know, it's really, he was talking about guns. Um, and he said, it's really weird, you know, being in an area where it's all open carry. He goes, not that I'm against it, but it's, it's weird. So those were the kind of conversations we were having. And um, we got home around eight o'clock um, at night. And, uh, you know, we played cards. We played a Filipino um, card game called Tongits. Fun game. And then uh, Franklin woke up, went back up. And David read him a story. I was still breastfeeding Franklin. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was so tired. And I, and, um, you know, we were trying to wean off Franklin. I was trying to wean him off from breastfeeding. And it was hard. And so I was, I was a little frustrated with that. He said, beautiful, do you need any help? And I said, no. And he goes, well, I got to get ready. Um, I'm checking into a new command tomorrow. So I got to get my things ready. It's going to be a long night, beautiful. And I said, yeah, I'm going to, um, I know I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to come down. 
after Franklin falls asleep. I ended up falling asleep (laughs) with him. And then I woke up. One of my friends texted me, Happy New Year. And then I looked at the time and I said, oh, he didn't say goodbye to me because he always says goodbye. And I uh, took Franklin downstairs. I looked to see if my car was there because maybe he took his took my car to bring um, to bring. I think he had some stuff from his last deployment and he said he needed to bring back into his old command. And um, so I thought that he had taken my car, but you know, something James, I will never forget is seeing his work boots. And I'm like, Oh, they're still here. Carrying Franklin. I walked to the kitchen and um, to the left of me is the garage door leading out to the, um, or the door leading out to the garage. And it was a red envelope and it said beautiful on it. I mean, I was beaming because we hadn't written each other notes in, um, you know, a couple months. And I open it and it said, um, you know, beautiful, call 911, don't let Franklin in the garage, I've committed suicide. And I dropped the letter, I was screaming, Franklin's face was, he looked mortified. What's going on? I went and I, um, I we had a landline, I called, Um, my parents on the landline. So they didn't know who, who, who it was. And then on the other, on my phone, on my cell phone, I had 911 and I'm talking to both of them at the same time, frantic, screaming. My mom hangs up because she has no idea who it is. The 911's like, what's going on? I'm like, my husband said he committed suicide. They said, have you checked? And I said, no. Um, He told me not to. There's a letter. And um, then my parents called me back and I'm screaming. I'm like, he's gone. He's gone. And my mom goes, what do you mean he's gone? And I said, he killed himself. And I can hear my parents, my dad screaming in the background. They love David so much. Um, and then oh, the cops came right away. And I remember it was, um, you know, uh, a female officer. And she, you know, grabbed me with a blanket. And we sat in my car. Uh, my mom had called out our friends. And they came um well, I called out one of our, my friend, our friend Dosh, and I said, he's gone. He's gone. He goes, I'm coming. And he had no idea. He thought that um, he thought that they had called him out. He, that's just what he thought. They thought that he, they called him out on a mission and it was last minute and um, he had just left. And um so when Dosh gets to the house, I remember him staring at me, even with the cops there and the detective there and the ambulance there. 
you know, he came up to me, he said, what's, what's going on? Where's Dave? And I'm looking at him like, do you not get it? <laughs> like, I didn't know what to say to him. And he said that I was almost catatonic for a while and he was snapping his finger and he said, Jamie, Jamie. And I looked up at him and I said, he's gone. And he goes, where is he? I said, he's in the garage. He goes, okay, I'll go in. And I said, no, he, he's gone. He, he killed himself. And Dosh, uh, in complete shock, um, you know, fell on my shoulder and started crying. And, um, you know, it, it was, I was so numb. And then everything happened so fast after that. I mean, I, I, had, I had no, again, nothing great enough for me to say that this is something or this is an option he would choose. Um, you know, that red envelope, it was almost like a caution tape. I mean, it was pretty big. It was a big red envelope because um, he really didn't want us to open the door. But um, <clears throat> oh, it's heavy. <laughs> it's well, I mean, heavy. It is heavy. And that's the firstly, thank you for for leading us through because I understand that revisiting that comes at you know a cost it takes a piece of you but at the same time these journeys are so important because people might be seeing that in their husband their wife even their child and really what resonates with me or kind of you know pops up is something that one of my friends Dustin Hawkins talked about with a fire chief that he was very very good friends with was this guy, you know, was was kind of going in crisis a little bit. And then all of a sudden there was this period where he seemed like he was in a great place. And the sad thing was that was the point that he obviously decided to take his own life. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people mistake. And, you know, how, how can you tell? You can't Monday morning quarterback a lot of these things. It's, it's, it's hindsight. It's all it is. But if someone goes from crisis to suddenly, you know, seeming, like you said, especially some of these things where, they're having some what would appear final relationships, conversations, experiences, mm-hmm. photographs mm-hmm. that that, you know, now retroactively is also another red flag. And this whole mental health conversation, we're all so new and so naive to mm-hmm. it's courageous, vulnerable conversations like yours that are teaching us all, not only the, the, the partner, but also maybe the person experiencing it as well. Like if you've, you know, if you've come to that point, it's not too late yet, but you know that's when you need to engage with your family and vice versa. If you see something, you might be completely wrong. Why not have that conversation? Are you thinking of taking your own life? You know mm-hmm. what's going on? Are you having you know physiological problems? Can we go to a to a brain doctor? Can we get a scan? Can we do all these things? But when the mental health conversation is, oh, it's what you see in combat. Let's do twenty two push ups and call it good. That's why these men and women fall through the cracks so often. Yeah, I mean, I it, it's it's a hard discussion to have, you know, because of the stigma and the culture out there. Um, you know, it's been we're going on four years, and 
the story, David's story never gets any easier to tell. But let me tell you why it's so important for me to share. A lot of people think that, and, and this is very true, you know, they, those who commit suicide, they don't want to be a burden on their families. Um, they, you know, and David said, I don't want you to see me fade away. I feel that if, I think he felt that if it came to that point where all the symptoms that he listed, like paranoia and memory loss, mood swings, headaches, um, there, there were quite a few that he had listed. Um, he was worried that it would affect him and then it would affect our marriage. And he didn't want it to go there. And he didn't want myself and Franklin to see him that way. And I've, I've thought a lot about this, you know, sometimes I feel selfish saying to someone, look at what your family would go through. Stay for your family because yes, they would stay. Maybe David would have stayed for us, but what could, what, what is it that we could have done for him? What could he have done for himself? I mean, I think that he really didn't see much. I'm being very careful here with my words. Okay. Um, I, I don't think that he saw much hope. in the military. I don't think they, I mean, I'm, I'm going to just say it and give you an example. He was pulled out of a patient's room when he was a PA and he was sat, he was told, David, don't ask those questions in regards to mental health, because if they answer negatively, they won't be able to deploy. So what are you telling David now? You're basically telling him no one can help you. So, you know, we we have to we have we have to work together here. We have to come together here. And I I feel like what I've learned is that we we fight or we're we're blaming the culture, we're blaming the military, or we're blaming the doctor. We need to stop doing that. We actually need to start acknowledging each other, acknowledging what is going on here and work together, right? And that's not happening. Um, I will tell you, as a family member who has lost someone to suicide, how it has 
I think it's important to know how it has affected myself and my son. And I'm, and I'm going to open up to you about something that I don't open up to um, others, but if it will help, I'm willing to do it. Um, for a long time, and, and I've talked to Ryan about this, I myself had many ideations. Um, and it was so scary. I kept envisioning and, tr- and trying to understand why David did what he did. And, um, you know, I could be having a good day and all of a sudden this ideation would come up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, get away. What? Why is this happening? I didn't understand. And I was so scared to tell someone. I was so scared to tell my therapist because I was scared she was going to put me in a psych ward. And um, one night at, you know, one o'clock in the morning, my mom was up and Franklin and I stayed at my parents' house for the weekend. And I said, I think I need to stay with my parents and not telling anyone why. And I, I came to my mom and I said, listen, what I'm going to tell you is scary. And I'm scared. I can tell you this, that I want to help myself and I don't want to do anything to myself. But for some reason, I cannot get these thoughts out of my head. It was like I knew what. I knew what people meant by devil, the devil and demons. And I'm like, I don't understand why I have these thoughts. And I'm letting you know, I'm going to talk to my therapist about it tomorrow. And I don't know what's going to happen with that. And thank goodness, (laughs) thank goodness, I opened up to her. And I told her what was going on. And she said, you know, that's very normal. And I said, it is. And she said, it is very, very normal. And, um, you know, it's important to talk about it. And the fact that you can open up about it, you're going in the right direction. And ever since I was able to open up, open up about it and use the mechanisms that she taught me, I've been, I've been really good since. Um, but I, you know, I say that for people to hear that, you know, it's, it's real, it's tough. It is hard. Um, and the way I got through it was, you know, every, every, every time I would have that ideation, I wouldn't fight it or I used to fight it. And then I stopped fighting it. And I would just say, not today, not today. And, you know, I would say it probably five times a day and then it would go down to three, two, one, zero. And um, yeah, so I thought I would share that with you. That's a tough share as well. Well, I mean, thank you again. These are the conversations we need to hear. I think one of the, there's a couple of things that have been common denominators in so many of these conversations. The first Mm -hmm. one is pretty much everyone that struggles think that they're being weak and that they're alone 
And so the real removal of the stigma is for everyone to discuss their own mental health journey. Some are mm -hmm. going to be more severe than others, but we all have highs and lows. I just lost my German Shepherd, my beloved dog of 10 years, and grieved harder than anyone else I've lost in my life, hands down. Um, but the, the big, big thing that was a, an aha moment for me and, you know, talking to people like yourself who've lost loved ones to suicide, talking to people that have got close, talking to people who actually did, completed the action but survived is the same resounding thing. Of course, there's a wanting to end suffering, but it's that feeling of being a burden that you never hear discussed in these mental health conversations. And so you take someone who feels like they're a burden to their, their loved ones and you say, think about your loved ones. Okay, well, you just amplified how they're already feeling. And so mm -hmm. when people have this, oh, how could they do that? That's cowardly, that's selfish. When you, and I was, you know, afforded this incredible perspective now, when you actually stop and listen to these stories of these mental health journeys, it's when you feel, when your brain is so miswired through TBI, through sleep deprivation, through childhood trauma, through organizational stress, organizational betrayal, you know, relationship problems, um, and that brain is literally miswired. It, it, it's broken now to a point. And you start believing that you are a burden, that the world will be better off without you. That is the warning sign that we need to start yeah. telling everyone. Because telling them to think about their family, they are, you know, and it's it's a selfless act, a terrifying selfless act. And one of my guests pointed out recently, you take a firefighter, a police officer, a Navy SEAL, you've already got a profession where we're willing to lay our lives down for someone else. So yeah. now you factor in the suicide element, well, I'll just remove myself from this world because my family's more important to me than I am. And so uh, realizing that all these people are going through it, realizing, as you said, with your counseling experience, that there are tools, it might be EMDR, it might be you know, psychedelic therapy, but there are tools that can help. That is the conversation we got to have. So, you know, thank you so much for, for being so vulnerable because these are the very stories that we need to hear, whether it's an amazing, you know, positive one that you navigated your own or a tragic one that David wasn't able to. Thank you. That was, it was hard to share. Um, but again, it needs to be shared. I, I mean, I, it's important people don't feel like they are alone. And, and thank you for saying that it's actually selfless. Um, I want to talk to you about a little bit about, um, you know, what David had left behind and, um, you know, as time has gone by, I, I'm realizing more and more that David actually, it wasn't that he gave up. He, I believe he sacrificed himself so that he could help others, so that he could help his brothers, really. Um, because of the communication he left, he left such an intentional commu communication there is intentional and unintentional um and so when i got back from um the funeral in illinois when i got back to north carolina to get packed up um a friend had reached out and said you know the paramedics really want to see um a picture of David. And I said, why? 
And they said, because they could tell that um, he was a good man. And I, I, I said, okay, um, was this different for them? And they said it was so different that they had to go home. They, they could not finish their shift. They had to go home. And um, my girlfriend said, when you are ready, I will, I will tell you how it happened. And I, I said, okay. Um, so when they found David, they said there was, um, he had laid out a blue, like a blue, like tarp and he had it taped down. And there was a chair, a bar stool in the middle. There was a cast iron pot attached to the back of the chair. Um, the chair was surrounded by two pelican boxes on each side. Those are the big storage boxes. Pillows surrounded. Um, to the right was a stack of concussion books. In the middle was a rosary and um, a picture of me and Franklin. And to the left were his, was his uniform um, with a letter to his command, apologizing for any loose ends that he had left behind. He had phone numbers on there. Um, and so when my fam my brothers came in, and David's best friend came in, um, you know, they decided to go to the house because I needed stuff. I couldn't stay at the house. And they said, um, you know, his best friend said, hey, guys, to my brothers, this is going to be, this might be, you know, pretty messy in here. And they walked in and it looked as if nothing happened. Because all that had to be done is pull up the tarp and throw it away. Oh, and also, I'm sorry, David was wrapped up in a waterproof sleeping bag. So, you know, the intentional communication is how he did it, right? Like, there was no mess for anyone to clean up because I know that he was thinking about the paramedics. I know that he was thinking, like, I don't want them... Um, to have all this mess to clean up. I know this is going to be hard to see. I know they see this stuff a lot. So, um, you know, and I asked about the cast iron pot and they said, I, I think it was maybe to catch the bullet because, um, and I said, yeah, because he probably didn't want anyone to find that either. So, um, and then the concussion books, that was intentional. The letter was intentional with all the symptoms that he had listed. And remember, this is not just someone who was, you know, a SEAL, an operator, a sniper. He was a medical professional. <laughs> and so, um, you know, doctors have read that letter and they have asked for copies of it. And I I was very hesitant in sharing and even sharing how David had um had died um i mean the ways in which he died 
And um, one of the doctors said, we've heard other guys talk to us about their symptoms, but we've never seen a letter. We've never seen it written so coherently. Um, So it's important that we have this. Um, So with that being said, you know, I look back at that letter and it's like, I find something new every time I read that letter. And one of the, the, um, the new discoveries for me would be when he said, this is a course of action. I chose. It was a course of action. And so it was his, it was, that's why I, I, I believe that he, he did it to sacrifice him. He sacrificed himself to help his brothers and say, here, look at my brain. Research my brain and help these guys out. Help these men and women out that are suffering like me. Did I ever tell you that, James? No, you didn't. No, this is all new to me. So did he also choose an area in the body to to shoot himself so he could preserve the brain as well then? Yeah. So right um, under his rib cage, through his heart to the brainstem. See, because I think it was Junior Sayers. I don't know if I got that name right, but there was an NFL football player did the same thing. And obviously that was another TBI, you know, cry for help. And, you know, I think it was the same same exact kind of philosophy behind it. Okay, I I can't do this anymore, but I'm going to leave this this gift behind, and I hope to God someone grabs this and runs with it. Yes, yes. Well, Jamie, I want to, again, thank you so much for that. I want to bring in Shannon, and then let's talk about what you collectively are doing. I know, Shannon, that you actually have a, a, a SEAL son as well. So let's talk about your kind of involvement with the SEAL community, and then I'd love to talk about what to do. I mean, we've had such a tragic story, but the most beautiful thing about what you're doing now, and obviously we'll talk about the Human Performance Project, is we can either just mourn our loved ones or we can get really fucking pissed off and say, all right, we're going to take this and we're going to, you know, honor their their life by doing something more after. I felt like meeting Jamie and the immediate bond that we shared was like, you know, to your point, James, the biggest gift. Um, because... I think in in many respects, there's a kind of strange expectation that we have around those people who are impacted or suffering the most to also be the ones to try to drive change. It's it's a kind of bizarre phenomenon that happens all the time, like, you know, people who protest or where we find activism or where we find a level of, you know, just unpent anger and and frustration over a system it's it's those people who have been impacted so closely and so while they're going through you know the tremendous trauma and grief that they're experiencing as a society we have this bizarre expectation that they're also going to be the ones who are going to fix it and it is so incumbent upon those of us who are within the military community 
and those who have any kind of relational impact, which is pretty much all of us and everyday citizens to get on this fight because no one is immune. Our family certainly is not immune from any of this. And I feel that it is um, not only what David was requesting or demanding, it was that there is no way that the other guys within the community would have been satisfied or even felt a a, a sense of um, you give a shit if we look at that and say, wow, that is a really tragic story. And then move on. Because you can't unknow this. You can't listen to, you know, what Jamie shares and, and the intimacy and the experience and the power of this, and then kind of forget that you just heard that and go about. I find that to be actually very insulting. I feel that there is this um, desire that a lot of people have to like, they're interested and fascinated it's kind of like the movie the hollywood side of it which we see so often in navy seal community and first responder kind of that the glamorized side of it and then the tragic and then you know now what so what i just find that with this particular situation there is jamie and i joke about this all the time there um that David brought us together. And um, there are often times where, you know, we're having a, a discussion or something happens and um, I'll look at Jamie and kind of joke and I'll say, oh, God, it was nice to see David again right there, <laughs> you know, or it was so nice to meet him. I remember the first time I told Jamie, I said, I feel like I met him today. It was just really amazing um, that you know, the power of his um, love and influence in this world continues that that is so uh, important, not only in terms of recognizing who he was, but the reality of all of this, James, is that it's just a really beautiful man. Um, and, and there's no coincidence that he called her beautiful and she called him handsome. <laughs> I first started capturing a lot of um, stories initially. I asked Jamie about maybe a year, year and a half ago. I said, do, do you mind if I just talk to you and let you talk to me? And I just want to learn about this. And I, as I, as we would meet and, you know, I'd always have my laptop with me, which she would laugh and I would be taking notes or sometimes I'd handwrite them and, and I keep them in a file on my computer called beautiful. And, um, it's, it's so interesting because, uh, when we first started talking, I'm like, this is the most, um, powerful love story I've, I think I've heard, um, I don't think it needs to end. That's the mission that we're on. We're approaching what we're doing with, you know, a tremendous amount of 
compassion and, and, and love. And I think that for many military families, you can hear these stories and you can just completely get frozen standing in fear. Or you can be in denial and say, not going to happen on our family. And, um, and we, we have no guarantees. And so we feel um, very mission-driven behind the work that we're doing in that um, it gives such service to, you know, all of those who are fighting to say that we're, we got you. We're not, we're not going to let you down. This happened and we're going to do something with it. And um, I think that that galvanizes in a whole other level of um, strength and almost empowerment for the organization, you know, kind of writ large, everyone who's involved in this to say, yeah, you know, you can do something. You can move from emotion and advocacy into action. It's just a choice, quite frankly. So the foundation starting was, you know, born out of friendship and it was born out of love. And um, I think it's, that's always going to be, you know, the ethos under which we, we operate. It, it has to be. Um, it's named after David. And that was really important and intentional as well. Um, you know, that we tell the story and we talk about the name and we bring in the human side of this. And the human side is really big. It's um, David's story. It's his son, Franklin. It's Jamie. It's all of their family members. It's, you know, my family as part of this large community. And we need to build a community of compassionate supporters around this. And I don't think that's too much to ask for. Um, so that's what we're on our way to doing. And I think we move very quickly. These last few months have been quite a, uh, quite a whirlwind. Um, I always say to Jamie, okay, we've got one chance to launch this thing. Let's go big. Don't leave anything on the table. <laughs> well, I want to get back to Jamie to talk about you know, her perspective of the, the foundation, and then we'll talk about Human Performance Project as well. But just before we do, tell me what the David Metcalf Foundation offers, and then also how people can support it. Mm, thank you. So uh, the, the three pillars of support that we are um, operating under right now as a pass-through organization, meaning the monies that come into us, we look to dedicate into three primary areas. First and foremost is family. Um, you know, this is about survivor. It's about those who are um, working through their trauma. Um, and, and those of us who really need to support one another, I have a very large definition of family. So, um, you know, in, in my mind, that doesn't necessarily limit us at all. In fact, it bleeds over into the next area that is important to us and that's building a community. And, and the community side of this is how are we thinking about, you know, putting resources and, and ideas together in a way that we are supporting one another and driving advocacy differently than maybe we have done in the past. At the center of what we do is, is supporting organizations who are driving good science, good science behind the connection that allow us to more deeply understand traumatic brain injury and suicidality, 
And to that end, it's not in where we are right now in a postmortem context and, you know, so far right of the conversation, it's to bring it way to the left really early on. What are early signs of traumatic brain injury? They are invisible. They cannot maybe be detected by scan. What are we doing to understand these and to really socialize these so that we're amplifying the need behind understanding among our family and our communities and the science what the heck is going on here? Because we're kind of looking back. We're looking back at 21 years of war. We're looking back at what happened and everything feels very retrospective. And I feel like we need to kind of have this inflection point right now where we're saying we have the ability and if we don't, let's go figure it out scientifically to understand what is happening with mild traumatic brain injury, blast wave traumatic brain injury, so that these guys, when they're explaining to us the things that are going on, they're not being misdiagnosed or mistreated or lacking diagnosis or lacking treatment, but we're addressing this in the way that they need and deserve and the families and our communities need and deserve as well. So we are nascent. We just started this organization about six weeks ago. And, um, you know, as we move forward on this mission, it has a lot to do really, James, with how we amplify this to a much greater cause than keeping it buried within Gold Star family members and military family members to try to understand this. We need to make sure that there are a lot more people out there saying, I had no idea. That's incredible that, you know, that is happening. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I want to join. I want to be a part of this because we need to understand it. It's going to impact communities for a long time. And um, we're better than that. Absolutely. And for people listening, how can they contribute? How can they donate? So we are at the David R. Metcalf. Um, we live at www.davidrmetcalf.org. Um, we belong to a, a good community and I believe coalition of organizations that are trying to figure out how we, you know, really advance these conversations, in, including the work that, of course, Ryan Parrott is doing, which is phenomenal. Um, he owns that space very nicely and uniquely. There aren't a lot of other organizations out there saying, I'm going to do you know, a human performance project, 7X. Um, but we love that we're able to you know, sit not only kind of adjacent to one another, but we really have a lot of overlapping interests. And so we can support one another in much bigger ways. And so following that kind of multiplier effect of, hey, stay in your lane. <laughs> the monies that we bring in, we definitely want to be supporting special operation organizations, especially those that are in support of family members um, that are suffering right now. And we're interested in building the community in which we serve. That for us is the Chicagoland area and the Midwest in terms of how we are really getting the right resources in place for this community so that they're able to kind of step back and say, this stuff didn't exist before. There's lots of it on the East and West Coast, but in our community, there's not a lot of opportunity for this. And so we feel like that's part of the gravitational pull that people have to be involved in the community. So um, gladly accepting any kinds of suggestions on how we can find programming that's going to be right uh, for people. And of course, with donations to be able to impact families, community, and the science behind this so that we can change the narrative. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Well, Jamie, back to you. Um, 
in my conversations with Sarah, you know, Chad, Chad's brain was also able to be studied. And as, as uh, Shannon touched on, you know, sadly, this is a post-mortem discovery on these, you know, these operators. Um, when there, his brain wasn't, excuse me, and that, oh my goodness, when his brain was analyzed, not analyzed, um, you hear of, of, um, lesions, you hear of scarring. Um, you know, he's, he's a seal. He's obviously deployed all over the place. He's got sleep deprivation. He's also a combatives instructor. So I'm assuming there was an element of head trauma in that training as well. What were you seeing post mortem from David's autopsy? Good question. And, um, I'm, let, there is not, I can't say too much yet uh, for research purposes. And I've been talked to about this, but let me say this, that they are continuing to how Frank Larkin would say, peel the onion. And what they have found in David's brain um is actually opening up more research. Brilliant. All right. Well, we'll leave that where it is then. I mean, you know, like it, there's definitely I, I enough. I wish I could elaborate. No, no but you're fine. Yeah. There's, there's enough cases already that underline, you know, that sadly we're finding, you know, post-mortem that yeah. there were issues that were obviously contributing to a lot of the, the mental health side as well. So walk me through your journey to creating the David Metcalf Foundation, and then let's talk about your the, the human performance project in 7X through your eyes, your perception of it. Um, so last year I wanted to honor David and I didn't know how. And I said, we live in the golf community and I truly believe David brought us to this golf community. community. Okay. He, he really did. Um, and I think that's for another day, but, um, the community here has been so welcoming and open and it's called white Eagle, um, community and they, we live right off of a tea box, the view it's beautiful. And, um, I decided to spend some time, you know, shortly after David passed, spend some time at this golf course and I would just look out and there was something so serene and healing about it. And, um, someone recommended, Hey, why don't you do a golf event? And that way you can raise awareness. I said, sure. Um, I had no idea that it would be received the way it was actually, I was very, very nervous um, in, in planning it, in telling David's story, um, because of, you know, because of the stigma, I was worried about what people were going to say to me and, and how I would handle it, you know? So we ended up having the event raising so much more money than we could have ever imagined. Um, and it's not about the money. It was more about the support that we got and the people there saying, I didn't know. Um, and then also with that, you know, we have, there's so many dates, right? Where we're mourning our loved ones, their birthdays, anniversary, you know, for military, Memorial Day, Veterans Day. This was the one day where, 
I didn't feel that. Like for the first time, I felt like we were truly celebrating David. We were honoring David and we were having a good time out there with great people. Um, It was a lot of work. I will say that it was emotionally draining. Um, You know, you always want, you know, David in my eyes was perfect. And so I wanted this to be perfect. And, um, and so I said, I'm not doing this next year. I'll do it every other year. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do it every, um, every year. It is too hard and it is emotionally draining. But people kept coming up and saying, we're all in next year. We're all in, we're all in. And I said, okay, we'll see. And then Shannon and I um, met up afterwards. Um, Like she said, we were already meeting prior to that. (laughs) And she starts talking about a 501c3. And I'm like, you know, I've, I've wanted to do it. I think that if we do another event, we need to have one because we were actually, um, I asked a local uh, foundation here called Naperville Response for Veterans to be our fiscal sponsor. And um, they were so generous to do so, but that's a lot of work for them as well. And I didn't want to put that burden on them. And so I said, if I do it again, I'm going to have to have a foundation. But I am in no way ready or emotionally ready to do this. And um, Shannon, you know, was like, okay, I don't know how to do it either, but let's do it together. And, um, and, and that's how it really, that's how it started. And um, I went from saying, no, I'm not having one next year to having a golf event on 9-12 and then having the launch of the foundation on 9-11. And actually two different groups to, right, Shannon, you'd say that like two very different groups. Um, And I believe that we've already outgrown the space that we were at for the 9-11 event because of the, um, you know, I have to say Shannon is amazing. I love her (laughs) and she is David sent. And, um, you know, the bond that her and I have had and, and continue to have is, uh, is rare and um, we're we're doing this together. I think w- the two of us are very powerful together. Um, she helps me speak. <laughs> Sometimes I don't feel like I'm good with my words, but she helps me get that voice out. Um, and so, you know, very lucky to have her. We already, um, Shannon, I don't know if you want to talk about the trip that we just had in DC and um, how impactful that was um, for, you know, there, again, people just don't know. And that was, that was almost like the common phrase of the weekend in, in September. I didn't know. I didn't know. How can I help? I didn't know. And um, 
that's where we are. And we are, we're working hard. We're <laughs> working really hard. And, um, and now onto the human performance project in, in February, which is going to be amazing. And another honor, you know, for David um, and, and all those who died by suicide and their families. So just talk to me about your perspective. I want to get to, to the uh, summit in DC and we'll go back to Shannon for, for a kind of closing perspective on that. But so we've got a year long kind of build up towards this event where we've got all the, the greatest minds when it comes to neuroscience and, and physical therapy and nutrition preparing these athletes for this round the world event. Then we've got seven skydives, seven marathons, and seven swims. When I say we, the people that are foolish enough to have signed up to do this, I'm just going to watch <laughs> from a plane going with them. But And then that's the breakdown event, really. That's the that's the deployment. That's the, you know, the 9-11 event, you know, whatever. That's the thing that a soldier or a firefighter or a police officer, that's kind of one of their worst case scenarios. And then there's the study of how to reboot them, how to rebuild them again. And then the creation of this manual and a docu-series of this whole entire journey is really the actual purpose for this. The 7X is a shiny object and it'll be fantastic to go around the world and visit all these different nations and share the message that we're all going through this thing. But as you were talking about, the solution is going to be in this manual. One of the solutions, of course, it's not the be all and end all, but on your nutrition, your exercise, your, you know, sleep, your mental, you know, practice, all these things. So this was all created because of, you know, David um, being Ryan's partner and, and David's suicide affecting Ryan and to a point where even though he's done so much with the burn injured community, now he takes up another torch and wants to address this problem as well. So just, you know, through your eyes, talk to me about this project and, you know, the impact that's having on your family. Um, you know, when, when David died, it was a hard hit for everybody. And they had said, if we had to write out a list, David would be the very last person to ever do something like this. And the guys started worrying about themselves. If David could do it, we could do it too, is what they kept saying. Um. I love what Ryan's doing. I know this is healing for him. I know it's going to help others. Um, you know, you, you said the word rebuild. And, you know, something I think about a lot is that, you know, in the military, our men and women are broken down. They break them down and build them back up to how they want them to be. But then what happens after that? And so I love what Human, Perform Human Performance Project is doing, is where they are rebuilding when you are broken. And not that they're going to be broken. Well, <laughs> oh, they're going to be not. broken. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not beyond repair, but they're going to be broken. No, but the, the, the strenuous training, how it breaks, that, that I can only imagine. Um, so I know that they can do this. I know they're going to do this. 
Um, and I hope it helps others. I know that David's, you know, looking down saying, thank you. Thank you to Ryan. Um, and I can't wait to see him when they come back. And, um, <laughs> well thank you i mean like i said the, the the emotional element of this um you know this was this was the the origin story this is the genesis so um all right well i want to go back to shannon for one more moment and then we'll close out because we've been talking for almost two and a half hours now and i'll be mindful of your time but before we started recording jamie and i were discussing about the uh, summit that you did in dc and one thing that i have seen as a first responder when the mental health conversation starts to be had, is it more often than not, it becomes death by PowerPoint. You know, these are the statistics. This is how many we've lost. And, you know, and it's cold and it's two-dimensional and it's emotionless. So talk to me about your experience when you went to DC and real human beings got to tell their story of loss to the scientific world who maybe up to that point was only exposed to the statistics side of things. Yeah, I think it was so powerful in that many times, you're right, these conferences, it's about numbers and they're looking at a lot of data and they're almost um, blinded from the human experience. And, and you, like we were talking about before, once you hear the stories um, and, and the uh, emotion associated with what has happened, it, it really, if it's not an indictment on the scientific community, it certainly does get their attention. And I think that part of it is because we've talked about the fact that David and others just didn't feel like there was going to be hope for a solution to what they were experiencing. And, and that's, that's tragic. And it is an indictment on, on the scientific community and all of us as it relates to whether or not we're going to be courageous enough to call this what it is, which is, you know, a, a national health crisis and put it higher on the agenda or as high as many of the other things that we've been able to figure out without, you know, too much uh, time. We go through something like a, a a pandemic and and we have um you know all sorts of solutions for that in no time at all um i think that we have to have open conversations around the fact that there's um you know no financial incentive necessarily associated with this you know there's no like a drug that's going to come along and then a pharmaceutical company is going to make a ton of money off it maybe there could be but unless we start talking about the realities of why this is so low on the priority list within our society, um, we're, we're never going to be able to get it higher. And I think that being in a location like Washington, D.C., where you not only have private and public sector, but you have people who are in positions to listen and act, um, then what I find with some of these conferences is a lot of the same people getting in a room and talking to each other. And that's just not what it's going to take. In fact, you know, I would be far more interested in seeing these types of conversations, you know, um, televised than I would a lot of other things. And I think that this is what we're, we're actually confronting right now, which is, you know, 
we tend to pay attention to something that is going to either make money or, or draw a lot of attention. So the amount of conversation that has taken place over the last couple of weeks in the NFL is, you know, it, it's staggering. Meanwhile, we're really not talking about anything associated with what's been going on with Warriors um, over the last 20 years since 9-11. Um, that is um, not only frustrating, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty sick. And Frank Larkin was the first one to get on stage during our conversation last week in Washington, D.C. and say, what do we need to do? Throw jerseys on our men and women who are fighting so that we can start to pay a little bit more attention to what's going on. And um, I think we're starting to have more of a conversation, I believe, James, around not only where things are from a mental health perspective, um, but also where things reside from a physical health perspective, which is why I think what is um, part of the 7X mission is so important. It's that it's holistic and it's so well-rounded and it's all the touch points that we need to be talking about um, in combination with each other. And um, not thinking about one thing kind of individually, but really thinking about this holistic kind of horizontal conversation that we need to have around how are we doing the work that is required so that we are all supporting one another to live our best lives and live our healthiest lives. I feel like it's just a missing conversation. Um, and so getting on stage and having the opportunity to start this dialogue from the human perspective was. Um, not only an honor, it was quite frankly the right thing to do. And I hope, I hope lots of other organizations start to fall in line with that. Um, because like we said before, you can't look away. And once you hear something and you hear the, the human side of it and the tragic element of it, if that's not a call to action, I don't know what is. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the thing is when you hear these stories, it hits you in the heart. And each one of these stories is a single person. And then you go back to those statistics and realize how you know, hundreds or thousands of people. Um, and I, I just saw, a, a, I think it was on the website, actually. It was 7,000 people we lost killed in action in the last 20 years and 30,000 suicides. I've got that right, 31,000. So you think of the impact of this two-and-a-half-hour conversation on a single sailor who took his own life. And now you multiply that by 31,000 times. And that's just that community that's not firstly the veterans that we don't know that aren't on statistics anymore and the firefighters and police officers and the doctors and the, and the wives and the accountants and the farmers and every other profession who also suffers from this so this it's so important for us to combine these statistics with these real world stories that actually grab people by the throat absolutely well, I just want to thank you both for such an amazing conversation. It was a really interesting perspective to hear, obviously, you know, Jamie's uh, journey and obviously hearing about David and his his path and the impact that he's left after. And then obviously as well, your involvement, Shannon, not only wanting to be part of the solution, but also having, you know, a child who's in that same team that David was. So I just want to thank you both. Um, Jamie, especially, obviously, for your your vulnerability and your courage in, in telling the story, um, and both of you just for taking two and a half hours to come on the podcast today. Thank Thanks you. for having us, James. Um, thank you for everything that you're doing, too, and um, with the Human Performance Project, and look forward to talking about that a little bit more next time. <laughs> 